0: Welcome back to There Are Three of Me. I'm Gabrielle Lawson, Ina Coriel, and Philippe de Lama-Troc. And we've been reading my DS9 story, Chim." Now before we begin, let me just say, I'm doing this with a cat in the room. I usually close the door without them. <laughs> we have four in the house. But he got in here before I closed the door, and he's being a good boy. Presently, he's behaving himself and sitting beside the computer screen and not in front of it. So, you may hear him move around, but he's probably going to go to sleep over there, so I'm going to let him stay as long as he behaves. So, back to the story. Here we are. We are at the last chapter. Last time, the Defiant beamed Bashir out of the gas chamber, but he'd already breathed in the gas. Quite a cliffhanger, so let's Stop hanging on that cliff, shall we? Let's get back to it. Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Osveenjim, by Gabrielle Lawson. Chapter 17. Sisko watched the pad and saw the two forms appear and coalesce there. Kira stood behind Bashir, ready to catch him if he fell. He opened his eyes just as the transporter effect left him. He didn't fall backward. His knees simply collapsed, and he fell forward. Sisko caught him and eased him down, at the same time pulling him off the pad. "'Get the rest of them, chief,' he called. Kira untied Bashir's hands and helped Sisko to roll him over. His face was dark, with a pink tint, and he was bruised nearly everywhere. Blood trickled from his lips, and Sisko could hear it in his throat as he gasped for air. Thomas had already called for a medical team. The door opened, and they ran in, tricorders in hand. Bashir was awake, but just barely. And with his right hand now free he gripped Cisco's sleeve. It's all right, Julian, Cisco told him, brushing the hair back from his eyes. You're going to be fine. It's over. No, he croaked, staring up into Cisco's eyes. He drew in another pained breath. It's not. Kira watched them, shaking with bottled up energy. Behind Bashir, Sisko and the nurses, the away team members were beaming up, two at a time. Thomas directed the first two around the group on the floor and out the door. "'Bridge,' Worf answered. "'Set course,' Kira told him. "'Prepare to leave orbit as soon as our people are on board.' Two more materialized and were ushered out of the way. "'What about the changeling?' the Klingon growled. Two more. "'She's dead,' Kira told him. "'Set course.' Course set, Dax's voice interrupted on your mark, major, two more, four left, Bashir was still conscious, still clutching Sisko's sleeve. He was in pain, it was obvious, but Sisko kept urging him to breathe, and Bashir kept obeying the last four materialized together. Kira waited until they were out the door. Mark the computer whistled, signalling a shipwide message. Dax's voice sounded over the speakers. All personnel, prepare for takeoff. We're going home. Major Kira forced her eyes open. She promptly shut them again and waited for the wave of nausea to pass. The deck beneath her felt almost fluid to her touch, as if she could reach through it to the next deck below. That, too, would pass, she knew. She just had to wait. She counted to ten and opened her eyes again. This time, the universe behaved. The room began to manifest itself, revealing colors and shapes and blinking lights. She pulled herself up on her arms. The floor was solid and held her. She saw people, but they weren't moving yet. Like she had been, they were lying flat on the floor, away from any obstacles that might have caused injury. They'd all been through this once before. She recognized Thomas by the open door that led to the corridor. She could see legs beyond dressed in high black boots. O'Brien was beside the control panels. One nurse lay near Kira's feet. He was still holding his tricorder. The other had doubled over near the transporter platform. An open medkit lay beside her. A few of its contents were spilled onto the floor. Bashir's feet were near her head. His right hand had finally released the captain's sleeve. His eyes were closed. His face relaxed. All the others began to stir, but Bashir lay still. Kira crawled past the barely conscious nurse, but the captain was already sitting up. Bridge, he growled. Kira tapped her comm badge and tried to call the bridge. Sisko shook the nurse at Bashir's feet. She was up in an instant. She touched her hand to her stomach once, but otherwise ignored herself for Bashir's sake. She ran the scanner from her tricorder over him, but Sisko did not need that. He touched two fingers to the side of Bashir's neck. There was no pulse. He refused to accept that. "'Don't do this, Julian,' he told the doctor, taking his hand and touching his face. "'Breathe!' "'Clear,' the nurse said, and Sisko backed away. She touched an instrument to Bashir's chest, and Bashir convulsed sharply. She checked her tricorder, and Bashir's chest began to move." She nodded, but her eyes didn't lose their concern. "'That's not enough.' Sisko turned to Kira. "'I can't reach the bridge,' she told him. "'Internal calm systems down,' O'Brien explained. The captain had not even noticed that he was awake. "'The antidote,' the nurse began, speaking quickly. "'The antidote is poison, too, if I get it wrong.' Sisko looked her in the eye. Right now she was the only hope Bashir had. Bashir would die if she gave him the wrong amount." but he would die anyway if she gave him nothing. Do your best. Defiant, this is Starfleet Medical. We read your signal. We are. You are nearing transporter range. Prepare to transport the patient. O'Brien. He had wrung another miracle from the battered ship. Two minutes, he warned. The nurse checked her hypospray and held it to Bashir's neck. It hissed, but Cisco could see no reaction. On the pad, she ordered, carefully, she took Bashir's legs while Cisco and the other nurse lifted his body, supporting his bruised neck and injured arm. They lifted him straight up and slid him onto the transporter platform. But as they set him down again, his breathing stopped. "'Clear for transport,' said the calm voice at Starfleet Medical. O'Brien pressed the controls, initiating the transport. Cisco waited for the tingling to start. Instead, the console sparked and snapped, pushing, Bashir, pushing O'Brien away. "'No!' he yelled, kicking the wall. "'Not now!' "'We've lost your signal, Defiant, and are assuming technical malfunctions. "'Starfleet Medical again. "'We have your coordinates, and will transport the patient from here. "'Transport in fifteen seconds.' "'While the nurse worked on Bashir, Sisko wondered just how much O'Brien had been able "'to convey to the dispatcher on the planet without even an audio transmission. "'Major,' he called. "'Get to the bridge.' "'The transporter caught him before she could reply.' Despite the urgency in the transporter room, there had been an odd tranquility there, a deceptive peace, a silence overhanging the noise. Starfleet Medical was a bustle, fast and noisy, even before Cisco had fully materialized. Reluctantly, Sisko backed away and let the medical personnel surround Bashir's thin, perhaps lifeless, form. The doctors shouted orders. The nurses, nurse recited Bashir's vitals and most obvious injuries. Other nurses raced about him to obey the doctors and in the middle of it all was Bashir, conspicuous in that sea of movement by his immobility. Sisko felt the silence return to him as he stood there watching, and realized now that it had not been on the Defiant. It was in himself, or in Bashir, or maybe passing between the two of them. But was it trust, or was it surrender? Trust, he whispered to Bashir as they lifted him on to an anti-gravity stretcher. That's an order." Kira made it to the bridge in time to completely shock the ensign on the viewscreen. He had been negotiating docking procedures with Dax, but he stopped mid-sentence when he saw her. Are you aware, he asked, that there's a Nazi on your bridge? Dax remained calm. You know your history. Dax had taken his statement lightly, but Kira was not as easily given to humor. I'm not a Nazi, she told him, stripping the latex from her nose. I'm a Bajoran. Now, please finish what you were saying. The ensign regarded her for a moment longer and then shrugged. You have the coordinates. Our chief engineer has been apprised of your condition. If you'd like, we can tractor you in. That will not be necessary. Worf's voice, though quiet, still held force. The Defiant can make it under her own power. Fine. Something drew the ensign's attention away from the viewscreen. When he turned back, his eyes conveyed bad news. Kira thought about Bashir and stepped one step closer to the viewscreen. "'Starfleet Medical,' the ensign said, "'has sent us word that your entire crew is under quarantine "'until everyone can be tested for typhus. "'Is your medical bay equipped to handle the test?' "'It was,' Dax answered. "'I'm not sure about now.' "'Well, if not, they'll send someone over.' "'Did they say anything else?' Kira asked, "'even though she knew it was likely too soon for any word.' "'No, sir,' the ensign responded. He still looked at her slightly askance. "'Don't worry,' she thought to him. "'This uniform is going to burn soon.' "'Ensign,' Dax spoke up just before he cut the transmission. "'How long have we been gone?' The ensign checked his readouts. "'Our records indicate you passed this way four days ago, sir.' "'Kira and Dax were among the first to be tested "'since they'd both been to the planet "'and were among the senior staff. Sisko was waiting in a small, comfortably-furnished room just outside the emergency trauma area. "'He'd been waiting for nearly an hour already. "'He was glad for the company when the two women arrived. "'I told them about Notsu,' he told them. "'They're ready for her as soon as the tests are done. "'I trust that nothing went wrong with the stasis chamber?' "'Dax shook her head. "'It was fine when we were there. "'I checked it myself.' "'Did you call Odo?' he asked.' He really had meant to call him himself, to see about the station, and to ask about Jake. But he had a feeling that the constable had everything under control. Right now Bashir needed him more. First thing,' Dax answered, summarizing her conversation with him. The station was fine, the Rotoran had found, and destroyed several ships that were blocking their transmissions. They found something, something like a changeling. Oda wasn't quite sure. It died. He thought it was just a diversion. He figured out we had one with us. Jake's fine, too. He said to call when you get a chance. Kira had taken the time to change back into her regular uniform. Her nose had returned to its normally rigid shape. Anything? She asked. Cisco shook his head. Not yet, but that could mean good news. If he were was dead, they would have told us already. He's not dead. Cisco spun around to see who had spoken. A tall woman with dark green eyes and a slightly angular face stood in the doorway. She was wearing red sur- surgical scrubs. The head covering was in her hands, leaving her brown hair to fall on her shoulders. "'But he's not in good shape.' "'Hana Orinova,' she said by way of introduction. "'I'm your doctor's doctor. May I sit down?' "'Of course,' Dax answered, moving over to give her room. Dr. Orinova sat down on the edge of the couch just opposite Sisko. Captain, she began, then she stopped and took a breath. She was obviously looking for a good way to give bad news. Cisco knew that bad news already. she He wished she'd just tell him. Captain, the worst of his problems, and there are many, is poisoning by hydrogen cyanide gas. Cyanide is an old poison. It's been around for centuries. And unfortunately, it's one we haven't been able to counteract any more efficiently than they could 400 years ago. The antidote is Dicobalt Editate. Dicobalt Editate is also poisonous. All cyanide antidotes are. While they are not as toxic when they're counteracting cyanide, they must be used very carefully. Your nurse is to be commended. Even with a healthy adult, it's difficult to determine the proper amount. She did quite well, and her promptness is an important factor in his continued survival." Cisco nodded. He was grateful for the doctor's frankness. She continued, On a positive note, we have an advantage over our less technically advanced ancestors. Cyanide works by internal asphyxiation. It prevents red blood cells from absorbing oxygen. With modern medical technology, we can filter oxygen directly to his body at the cellular level. This won't save him, but it will certainly give him a helping hand. Normally, if a victim lives for four hours, he'll recover. We're helping him to do that. He's got three more to go. Her hands had been crossed in her lap, but she moved them now, lifting her red surgical cap and revealing a pad which she handed to Sisko. "'He's also got a lot of other problems,' she stated, a few of which are also potentially life-threatening. The bruise on his neck, for instance. "'It's caused a hematoma. As yet, it's not terminal, but it does warrant constant observation. It could lead to stroke.' There is a thankfully very slight perforation of the larynx, and he shows signs of a previous cardiac arrest. Our scans show bruising on the heart. He needs surgery, but his condition is just too delicate at the moment to risk that." Sisko looked at the pad. It was a long list of medical terms, followed by a layman's translation. Internal asphyxiation and cyanide poisoning were at the top. Sisko had to page down a a few times to get to the bottom bruising on the left shin. "'And to be frank with you,' she continued, looking directly into Sisko's eyes, "'as his doctor, I'd like to know how in the hell one thirty-three-year-old man gets a list like that. I know you've been contacted by Starfleet Command and told to keep it quiet, but I do have some idea. I saw the tattoo on his arm. I had an ancestor who had a tattoo very much like that, on the human side, of course. She was a survivor of the Shoah—the Holocaust. Sisko didn't say anything. He couldn't, not until after he was debriefed, and he refused to be debriefed until after he had concrete word on Bashir's condition, but he met her gaze and did not waver or blink. "'I don't understand how, but I promise you I will do my best to see that he he survives the next three hours,' she stood. "'The rest is largely up to him.' Sisko and the others stood as well. "'Can we see him?' Sisko asked. "'Sit with him.' The air's a little strange in there, pure oxygen, and it will feel like it's soaking into your skin," she warned. We're still doing some work with him, but if you're still interested, I'll come get you when he's ready. Thomas was tired, but she just couldn't see going to her temporary quarters to sleep. She stepped outside the airlock and looked down the wide corridor. There was a lot to do at a starbase. She could go to a restaurant or take in one of the cultural entertainments going on. She just didn't feel like any of those. She had thought, perhaps naively, that saving the doctor would ease her guilt, but the memories and thoughts refused to go away just because they had left that century behind. "'Something wrong, Ensign?' a familiar voice asked. Thomas turned and saw Novak standing in the airlock doorway. "'How are you?' He had tested positive for typhus, but luckily it was an easily treatable disease. He shrugged. "'Never even felt bad to start with.' Actually, he admitted, I did, but I thought it was just the smoke in the place making me sick. How about you? Oh, Thomas said, straightening up straighter. I'm fine. I tested negative. I wasn't talking about the typhus, he told her. You know, we may be restricted from talking about our trip with others, but we can talk about it among ourselves. I'll bet we can find his name in the archives. Thomas met his eyes. She had to look up at him because he was so tall. "'Which archives?' "'Not sure,' he confessed with a graceful smile. "'But I'll help you find out.' He bowed slightly and held out his elbow to her. Thomas smiled, too, and took his arm. "'I'd like that,' they started down the long corridor. "'I hope I told you his name.' At first there was only the sound of air rushing in and rushing out, and darkness, And then sensation, pressure on his hand. There was pain. Not in the hand, but elsewhere. Too much pain. The air grew quieter as as other sounds came muffled to his consciousness. "'Julian,' he thought he heard. "'Julian, open your eyes.' It was a woman's voice, slightly accented and quiet. It was far away. Nearer to him, other voices became audible, voices that were not pleasant, words he couldn't understand." fear. The soft voice spoke again. "'Julian, open your eyes.' He didn't want to open his eyes. He wanted to go back, back to where there were no voices, where there was no pain, back to only the rushing of air in and out, to blackness. "'Julian, please.' That voice was closer now. It sounded familiar. Did he know that voice? "'Wake up and open your eyes.' Amsha Bashir looked up at the doctor, looking for help in her face. "'Keep trying, Mrs. Bashir,' the doctor whispered. "'He hears you.' "'How can you tell?' Richard Bashir whispered back, touching his wife's shoulder as she held their son's hand. "'His breathing is becoming more erratic. His pulse rate is increasing,' she answered, indicating the machines around the biobed. "'He's in pain. He's he's conscious—semi-conscious, anyway.' Amsha looked again at her son on the bed. His gaunt features had been peaceful before. Too peaceful, she had thought. He had looked like like he was dead and set out for visitation. It had frightened her so much to see him like that. But now Julian's face was lined with pain and—was it memory? As family, Captain Sisko had been allowed to tell them what had happened Julian's brows were furrowed. The hand she held began to clench her lightly and then release, almost spasmodically. The doctor nodded again, more forcefully. "'Julian?' Amsha began again. "'Julian, can you hear me?' He knew the voice, but it was growing fainter again, lost in the screams he heard around him, hundreds of voices, screaming, choking, begging for something. He knew what they wanted. They wanted air. He wanted it too. Julian, please. There was something in his hand, something strong and soft, something comforting, but it couldn't stop the screams. The thing belonged to the voice. It was the pressure he had felt. Julian, open your eyes. Maybe if he did-if he did as he was told, the other voices would stop. Maybe he could see the hand that held his. Maybe that one would save him all at once. Julian's o- eyes opened, and his face took on an expression of sheer terror. The hand she held grasped her own with strength that surprised her. Julian should have been weak. Knowing that his neck was probably still sore, Amsha leaned closer so that she'd be in Julian's line of sight. She touched his face. "'Julian, can you hear me?' Julian continued to stare in horror at the ceiling. He lay strangely still, as if frozen to the bed. His face had become ghostly white, but his mouth moved. Amsha didn't hear anything at first, but then she knew he probably couldn't talk. She leaned in closer, and Julian's whispers became clear. Make it stop," he pleaded. He had wanted to see the voice that spoke to him, the one that was familiar, but when he opened his eyes he saw only the screamers. They clung to him and scratched at the walls, climbing on each other and him wailing and gasping for breath. He wanted it to stop. The blackness was better than this. The blackness was peaceful and quiet, no pain there but he couldn't close his eyes. From somewhere far away, drowned by the voices, he could almost hear a name, his own name. He clung to the hand he felt, the one that belonged to the voice. It had to help him. Make it stop, he pleaded. He could feel and hear the breath leaving him, but he couldn't hear a voice. The voice that belonged to the hand didn't hear him. Please, he cried to it. Make it stop. Still, the people shrieked and howled around him, writhing in agony, contorting and convulsing. Something touched his forehead, something cold and hard, but not heavy. It did not belong to the voice he tried to hear. His eyelids began to close, blocking out the vision of death before him. Their wailing grew fainter, muffled by the sound of air, rushing in and rushing out. Blackness was coming again. He let it come. Julian's hand slackened in her own as his eyes fluttered closed again and his breathing became more regular. Very gently, she bent over him, touching her forehead to his fingers. Richard held her shoulders. She was glad they had let him come, but even his leave from prison couldn't keep her tears from coming. Julian was her son. He looked so small and thin to her. His hand was so light. She was thankful when the doctor had put Julian back to sleep. What had he seen there on the ceiling? She tried to think of the hell he'd been through, but she couldn't even imagine it. She had a few ideas, but she couldn't know for sure. Not really. Sisko had given up his place beside Bashir's bed reluctantly, though he would not admit that to Julian's parents. They deserved to be there with him. He was their son. To Sisko, he was just an officer. No, he was more than that. He was a friend, and he wanted to be with his friend when he woke up. Instead, he had been waiting in the little lounge for eleven hours, barely moving between reports from his doctors and watching Bashir's face on the monitor. There was a hand on his shoulder. Sisko turned his head to see Dax there. She looked up at the monitor with sad eyes. Julian was sleeping peacefully again. The lines were gone from his face. He looked so young then, and yet so much older. I shouldn't have let him go back, old man," Sisko whispered, still watching the screen. She sat down beside him, but her hand was still there, on his shoulder. You had to, Benjamin," Dax said quietly, squeezing his shoulder just a bit. He was right. It would have been worse for him if you hadn't. He couldn't have lived that way. Sisko knew she was right. Bashir had been adamant. He didn't want to cause others to suffer. "'but it was hard watching Julian suffer instead. "'You should try and get your, get some sleep yourself, Benjamin,' Dax suggested. "'It's been a very long time since you've slept. "'Centuries, in fact.' "'Cisco sighed and shook his head. "'He couldn't just walk away. "'You're exhausted.' "'Dax took his arm and pulled him up from the chair. "'They'll stay with him,' she meant his parents. "'He's going to be fine, Benjamin.' "'He couldn't argue anymore.' He was too tired. He let her lead him out of the room. He felt again the blackness slipping away, but this time there was no voice and no screaming. It was still quiet. He could hear the air rushing in and rushing out, and he knew it was his own breath. He could feel the pain again and remember why it was there. He heard familiar sounds, clicks and beeps. One, he knew, was his pulse. He opened his eyes, expecting to see light that would hurt them, but the light was dim and his vision blurred. He turned his head, or at least he tried. The muscles on the right side of his neck protested painfully, but now he could see there was a form beside him, sleeping in a chair. He looked uncomfortable. Cisco. That was not the voice he had heard, but it was right that he was there. He heard his words again in his head. Don't give up on us yet." He closed his eyes again in shame. He had done just that. He tried to move his arm, to touch him and see if he was real, but his left arm wouldn't move past the elbow. Sharp pain emanated from his shoulder. He remembered his shoulder hurting, shoulders hurting, that one being dislocated. He reached then with his right arm, across his chest. That hurt too, but he had to try. "'Captain,' he attempted to say, but his voice wouldn't work. His throat hurt when he tried. Captain.' Sisko jerked awake and saw, first, Amsha Bashir's form lying on the next bed over. She had asked him to come while she slept. He was grateful to her for that. He looked up at the doctor who stood just behind him. She was smiling. She tilted her head toward the bio-bed. Sisko followed her gaze to find Julian Bashir looking back at him, reaching out his hand to him. Captain, Bashir said softly but gravelly. His eyes looked hopeful. Are you real? Sisko forgot his weariness and pulled his chair closer to the bio-bed. He took Bashir's hand and listened for his whisper. Yes, he replied happily. I'm real good. Bashir's mouth turned up ever so slightly in a smile. I was, he took a breath, worried about you. Now that didn't make any sense. Me? he asked, but when Bashir didn't offer an explanation, he didn't push the issue. Do you know where you are? The smile disappeared as Bashir looked around the room as best he could. His mother, now awake, was at his other side, smiling down at him. He smiled back, just for a moment. A hospital, he answered. Modern. Sisko nodded. Starfleet Medical. Why does it still hurt? Bashir asked, still in a whisper. Sisko didn't know how to respond. He didn't want to provoke any bad memories. It was cyanide, he finally said. He was about to explain that the doctors couldn't give him anything for the pain because it might interfere, but Bashir nodded that he understood already. Of course he does, Sisko admonished himself. How long? Sis- Sisko wasn't quite sure what he was asking, but assumed he meant how much time had passed since he'd been gassed. Twenty-three hours. Bashir smiled again. That's more than four. Four. Sisko grinned, too. Yes, it is. The smile disappeared, and Sisko saw there was genuine worry in the younger man's eyes. I'm sorry, he said. Sisko didn't understand. What had Bashir done to be sorry for? For what? I gave up on you. Sisko could see Bashir's eyelids trying to close again, but they didn't, and he continued. In the gas. He breathed. I tried to hold my breath, but... He broke off then and looked away to the ceiling. His breath came faster, but in uneven spurts. You couldn't hold your breath that long, Julian, Sisko said, trying to console him. No one could. Bashir's brown eyes, so tired, looked back to him. I took a deep breath, he said of the gas to die." Thoughts ran through Sisko's mind of what it must have been like in there and shook his head. No one would blame him for giving up. Not in there. Julian, he began, but he didn't know quite what else to say. It's all right, was all he could think of. Don't be sorry. Bashir was losing his battle with his eyelids. He nodded weakly. ''I had a dream,'' he said. ''That Kira was coming to save me.'' He blinked, trying to stay awake. ''She did,'' Sisko told him and watched him fall asleep again. Bashir awoke and this time there was no light at all and no pain. He could turn his head and even move his shoulder. He lifted his hands. The left was identical to the right, unbroken. He did not even feel hungry. He felt fine. For the first time in weeks, he was warm and felt at peace. He was safe. "'Jules!' his mother exclaimed as she entered the room. "'You're awake! Your father and I were so worried!' She came to his bed and hugged him. Her touch was soft, not painful. She kissed his forehead and pulled pulled back to sit beside his legs at the foot of the bed. Julian looked around the room, but did not see his father. Where's dad? he asked. In prison, his mother answered. She seemed untroubled by that fact. They didn't let him out? Bashir complained. Even for this? It's really not important, Jules, she told him. You're well, and we have you back again. Julian looked at her. It was an odd thing to say, in a strange choice of words. She smiled at him, and her smile sent a wave of dread through his body. It was an evil smile. She blinked, and when her eyes opened, they were black. No iris, no pupil. She laughed. When she spoke, her voice was no longer that of his mother. It was Whaley, and it was Hyler at the same time. And we won't make the same mistakes this time. She reached her hand toward him to touch his chest. A small strand of her fluid self like a short, thick needle protruded from her open palm. Bashir was frozen to the bed. He couldn't move or call for help. He couldn't even scream. Her hand touched him, stabbed through his skin. Julian gasped and his eyes flew open. The room was dark and quiet, but he couldn't turn his head and his shoulder wouldn't move. He felt soreness and fatigue. And his stomach was empty a long tube ran from his left arm to a unit on the wall his mother was beside him sitting in the chair where he thought he'd seen cisco she was sleeping and he was afraid to wake her he barely blinked the rest of the night kira left the conference room and blew out a breath she hadn't had to deal with temporal investigators last time This time, she'd faced a roomful of them. They'd already been through nearly everyone else who had been on the planet. Though she had really spent less time than any of them on the surface, with the exception of Sisko and his short visit, she was the highest-ranking officer who'd gone down. So they spent the greatest amount of time grilling her on everything that she had done and seen. Who had she talked to? What did she say? Did she think that she in any way changed the timeline? They hadn't liked her story about the barracks. She hadn't liked it either, but she told them the truth, and the truth was that while she didn't think her actions altered the timeline, she couldn't be sure. Maybe the block elder was angered by her visit and punished one of the others. Maybe he hadn't the first time around. She didn't know. Still, she wasn't sorry. She would have done the same again if it meant saving Bashir. Besides, she reminded them, if anyone had changed the timeline it was the changeling herself. She had killed at least one man that probably wasn't meant to die in the original timeline. In her capacity as a star f- uh, as an SS officer in a concentration camp she might have killed more. They wouldn't know for sure until Bashir had his debriefing. Kira was looking forward to that even less than she had her own. While she was, admittedly, curious about his seven and a half weeks off the ship, she knew that it would be difficult at best for the doctor to recount those weeks to a group of strangers, bureaucrats, no less. He was sitting up when she entered his room. He smiled as his mother excused herself. "'I don't mean to interrupt,' Kira told her. "'I can come another time.' "'No, no,' Amsha said, touching her shoulder. "'I need a break.' "'She's hungry.' Bashir said, but she doesn't want to admit it in front of me. His voice was soft, but getting stronger. Two days of lying in bed had done a lot for him. They still won't let him eat real food, Amish explained. I think it must be terrible. It might be more terrible, he argued, if after all those weeks of starving I died because I ate something, he sighed. But you're right, it is terrible. So eat for both of us and tell me all about it when you get back. Kira couldn't help but smile at him. How could he make jokes after all that? Amsha squeezed her arm and pushed her gently into the room. Kira just watched him for a moment, standing at the foot of his bed. He was still thin, but the tube that led into his arm was feeding him nutrients at a level his body could withstand. He wasn't bruised anymore—they'd taken care of that—but he still leaned his head back on pillows, and his left arm was still restrained against the bed. A display over his head monitored his heartbeat. "'Please sit down,' he told her finally. "'It makes me tired watching you stand.' Kira obeyed, though she really didn't mind standing. she just spent six hours with the bureaucrats, sitting when she wanted to get up and at the very least pace the room. "'How are you, Julian?' "'Better than I look, I hope,' he answered. He was still smiling, but he looked sad. "'At least two more surgeries.' He glanced down at his hand. It was still twisted and ugly, though it had regained more of its natural coloring." "'It's knit together already,' he explained. "'They're going to try something new. "'Osteogenic replacements, all new bones, pa- "'patterned after my other hands so they'll match. "'Did you kill her?' "'The question was so blunt it took Kira by surprise.' "'Yes,' she answered plainly. "'Are you sure?' he asked, fear growing in his eyes. "'I mean, because I keep thinking or or, or dreaming that she's dead, Julian.' Kira promised him. She lifted her hand. Hold out your hand. She could tell he was afraid, but slowly, his right hand lifted from the bed, palm up. Kira had held a small vial, and she poured the contents of it into his hand. That's all that's left of her. Bashir stared at the gray-black powder in his hand as if he was waiting for it to change and move. His hand shook. She had scooped up a handful of the powder just before she transported. Once, in, once the ship was docked, she had dumped it from her pocket into the little vial. Now she helped to dump it back. It's for you, she said, putting the vial in his hand, to do with as you please. If you want to destroy it, there's a phaser waiting for you as soon as they let you out of here. He held the vial up and gazed into it, but she could see that he was seeing more than the powder. He drew in a shaky breath. I can't tell my mother this," he said, speaking softly, but sometimes I don't know what's real. I keep thinking this is a dream, and when I wake is when I'm asleep, I'm back there, and, and she's back there, or I dream in and, and I wake up and I see her here where you're sitting, and she leaned toward me, and <laughs> he couldn't finish. His mouth just wouldn't make the words come out. That's not really awake. Kira told him. She took the vial back and placed it on a table, and then she took his hand. This is real, Julian. It's over. I promise. He shook his head. But you can't. He said. They can be anything, Nerisse. Anywhere. They can be the wall, or the bed, or you, or me. You can't promise anything. She didn't know what to say. He was right. It was a terrifying thought. She had been having thoughts like that since Ambassador Krajinski turned out to be a changeling. And then when the Dominion had invaded, she had had nightmares. She still did sometimes, but she could always tell the dreams from something real. For him, the nightmare had been real. She knew what it was like, to a certain extent. She had fought most of her life to rid her planet of Cardassians, and when it finally happened and they were gone, that felt like more like a dream to her than reality. Life was different, too easy, maybe, without the constant threat, the constant fear. Which was more real? He surprised her again. "'I lied, Kira,' he said. She shook her head. She didn't know what he was talking about. Lied about what? "'On the ship,' he explained. "'When I had to go back, I lied about why.' She still didn't understand." You mean they wouldn't have killed all those other people? This time he shook his head. He winced a little when he did. They would have killed them. I didn't lie about that. But I wasn't so concerned about the timeline as I led on. I don't think I cared about the timeline at all. I was more concerned about Max and Leo and maybe Vladia, but I hadn't seen him for so long. Kara thought for a moment before answering. Would she have cared in his situation, or would the people have meant more to her? She knew they would. She had made a similar decision about Gaia, offering to give her life to protect the lives of the Defiant's descendants. But for Bashir, it had been even more personal. They were your friends, Kira stated. They would have killed them first. Can you find them for me, Kira? He asked, his eyes filling with urgency. I need to know. Bashir was still holding her hand, but he held it tighter now. I'll try, she promised. What were their names? Max Zydel, he told her. She found a pad and handed it to him, but he didn't write it. I don't know Leo's last name. I just know that he was Max's brother-in-law, his wife's brother. And I don't know how to spell Zydel. I haven't got a clue about Vladya. He laid the pad down. V L A with an accent mark D with a hot check A. Bashir was startled by the interruption. Kira had been too, but she recognized the doctor's voice and accent. It's check, yes. The doctor asked, stepping farther into the room. Yes, Bashir answered. Can you write it? He held the pad to her. His hand still shook. Kira wasn't sure if it was fear or weakness. She remembered what he had said. They could be anyone. Of course, she took the pad. "'What was his last name?' "'Cherbok,' Ch- Ch- Bashir said the name slowly. Vladya didn't blame him. It sounded difficult.' "'Definitely check,' the doctor said brightly. "'Any others?' Bashir repeated Max's name, which she wrote down. She handed the pad back to him, but he handed it to Kira. "'Major,' the doctor continued, "'I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask you to leave. "'We have a surgery to prepare for.' Kira stood quickly, but Bashir stopped her from going. "'Thank you,' he said. His face was so serious. "'You're my hero now.' "'You should talk to Jordan,' she told him. "'He found you the first time.' "'I'd like to.' Kira gave him another smile, though she felt worse now than when she had come in. He was right. There was no certain way to tell if someone was a changeling. The doctor could be one, and she was about to leave him alone with her. "'Don't be ridiculous,' she told herself. "'She hasn't hurt him yet.' She excused herself and took the list of names with her. Three days later, it was Bashir's turn in the conference room. He'd only been walking since the day before, but he insisted on walking to the debriefing himself. Captain Sisko was there, still in dress uniform. He helped Bashir to straighten his. It was a little too big. Bashir stared at himself in the mirror. He almost didn't recognize himself. "'It was a nice service,' the captain was saying. "'I'm sorry you couldn't be there.' Ashir shook his head. "'I saw her kill people,' he said. beating "'Beat them to death in front of me. "'But I didn't know about the others. "'She only said she killed you. "'I should have caught it. "'I knew there was something wrong with the blood.' "'Julian,' Sisko said, sounding a bit frustrated. "'It wasn't your fault. "'None of it was your fault.' Do you remember when the Klingons attacked the station? Martok stood right in front of me and cut his hand open. He bled right there on my desk. But he wasn't Martok. I couldn't tell. And you, you walked around for a month performing surgery and we couldn't tell it was you. she He softened his voice again. She fooled all of us, Julian. Julian knew he was right. He was just so used to blaming himself. But he remembered things she had said about how all the crew was supposed to go to Auschwitz. They would have all been killed, but he had delayed her and Sisko had destroyed the ship. Fourteen crew members had died. It was unfortunate, but it was better than all of them dying. How did Salerno die? he asked. He had read the report naming the survivors and the report of the funeral that took place just an hour ago. His name had been on both lists. Sisko sighed. She killed him that last night. He was looking for you in the main camp, near Block 11. Kira found his body on the other side of the wall. He'd been stabbed. It looked like some animal had torn his face. Lion, Bashir whispered, remembering. He sat down on the edge of the biobed. I was hanging there. I thought I was hallucinating. I did that a lot. I saw a lion dragging a uniform. It became an elephant. I thought it was a dream. Hanging? Sisko asked. Not by my neck, Julian assured him. By my wrists. Not something I'd recommend. Sisko apparently wanted to change the subject. You hallucinated a lot? Always animals? Bashir chuckled and shook his head. (laughs) No, it was usually it was you or the chief, even Garrick. You helped me get through things, usually when I didn't want to get through things. You made me set my arm the first time, and O'Brien, he told me it didn't hurt as much the second time. He was lying. Sisko laughed, too. Glad we could help. He took a deep breath again. Julian, I have to get back to the station. I'm taking most of the remaining crew with me. Julian turned to him sharply, feeling a panic rise up in him. They were leaving him. No, he argued with himself, just leaving before you. When?" he asked, trying to calm himself. Sisko shrugged. Now, he said, but Major Kira will be staying. The Defiant's not ready to leave yet, either. She'll stay and bring you and the replacement crew back with the ship. A few of the others volunteered to stay as well. They want to see you. They helped to save you. Julian nodded. The hospital had rules about how many visitors a patient could have at one time. Only his parents and the senior staff had been to visit him so far. "'Kira's already there,' Sisko continued. "'You may want someone in there with you, someone you know.' Bashir nodded, but he couldn't really think. He was finally becoming a Muslim. he thought. "'A little late now,' he chided. Sisko shook him out of it. "'Oh, I have something for you.' He held his fist out, palm down. Bashir put his own hand out, and Sisko dropped something in it. It had a familiar feel to it a weight that wasn't heavy but meant something. A communicator badge, brand new. It was such a small thing, but he hadn't worn one for almost two months. It felt right to have one in his hand again. He remembered the hope he'd had in his last one, there in the train, if only the defiant had answered. Is that how you found me? Julian asked. My comm badge. Cisco nodded. The Nazis were trying to repair it. We traced it back to Bialystok and from there to Treblinka and Auschwitz. We weren't sure which. We had to search both of them." Bashir buffed the badge on the sleeve of his uniform and then held it up to the light. It was so shiny. He saw a reflection of his own eye as he looked at it. It was real. It had to be. The door opened and Dax entered. "'It's time,' she said. O'Brien was behind her. Worf stayed out in the corridor. "'I'm sorry we can't stay, Julian.' Bashir knew they had to go. The Dominion was still out there. "'I'll be there soon,' he told her, putting on a smile he didn't really feel. "'If it was time for them to go, it was also time for him. You won't even have time to miss me.' "'Who said anything about missing you?' O'Brien quipped. "'Don't let them go too hard on you, Julian.' "'Can't be as bad as my last interrogation,' Julian joked back. It was easier that way." "'It's not an interrogation,' Sisko contended, missing the humor entirely. "'It's a debriefing, and you're going to be late for it.' He helped Bashir stand up and held onto his arm until the dizziness left him. Dax gave him a hug, and O'Brien shook his hand. "'I've told my father to expect you,' Sisko told him. "'New Orleans. Don't forget.' He walked Bashir to the door. Sisko had already told him about the restaurant. He was supposed to go with Kira— The captain had even cleared a special menu with Julian's nutritionist. "'How could I forget?' Julian asked him. "'He couldn't wait. The hospital was keeping him on a rather bland diet. It would be good to have something substantial, even if he couldn't have very much of it. A nurse was waiting in the hall, and she walked with him the rest of the way. Cisco and the others had to go in the opposite direction.' As soon as they parted ways, Julian felt alone again, and no matter what he had told them about the debriefing, it scared him nearly as much as the interrogation had, though this time he knew they wouldn't rip out his fingernails. They would just make him remember it all, and there was some of it he prayed to forget. The interrogation, debriefing, he reminded himself, had been set up right in the hospital in deference to him. The nurse went inside the conference room with him, The whole medical staff had been very protective of him from the beginning. After reviewing his own chart, he could understand that. He didn't mind. He liked protective, though he knew he couldn't trust it. The room seemed to be full of people, though Bashir rationalized that it was only his imagination. There were four people present at the main table. They would be questioning him. One wore a uniform, an admiral. Two others wore drab suits, temporal investigators. The fourth was a Betazoid, probably a counselor, someone to guard his emotional state. But she was also someone who could pull out memories, things he wanted to forget. Kira was already there, sitting in a chair near the back wall. She nodded and smiled when he saw her. He felt better knowing she was there, but not much better. He was afraid they would ask him too many questions, questions that didn't involve the timeline. If even one of them was a changeling, then they all would know. They would know everything she did to him. The nurse left, and the admiral stood. "'Doctor,' he said, bowing slightly, "'please have a seat.' Julian looked at the chair in the center of the room. It was no different than from all of the other chairs, padded with red upholstery. But it had arms, and Julian stood for a few moments more, seeing a different chair, and his own blood spilled on the arms, turning them red. He closed his eyes. It's just a chair, he told himself. Just a chair. He felt dizzy and had to sit. Please understand, doctor, the Betazoid said. We're not here to prosecute you. Just to assess any possible changes to the timeline. We'll make it as brief as possible. We don't want you to feel uncomfortable. They all introduced themselves, but Julian was only half listening. He could have sworn he heard a murmuring in Polish. He held his left hand, still gnarled and crooked, in his lap. The room felt hot to him, but he was starting to shiver. "'You spent nearly two months on the surface,' one of the investigators began, checking his notes. Bashir couldn't remember his name. "'It would be difficult to recount every action undertaken in such a long time, so it would probably be easiest if you could start by telling us of any significant events that might have changed the timeline.' "'Significant events,' Bashir thought.' Shimon's death was significant. And all reads? They all were. But the man had spoken about the whole affair as if it was so sanitary, packaged, and easily manageable if they'd just used all the right words. Everything, Julian told him, everything was significant. And everything might have changed the timeline. I was there. I took up a space that would have been filled by someone else, so maybe someone was saved because they weren't in my spot, or maybe someone died because of it. The tiny rations that I ate would have fed a different man. The space I took on the bunk would have given another man a place to sleep. The men she killed might not have died. Not one of them was insignificant. The investigators looked at each other and then at the Betazoid. This was not going as smoothly as they would have liked. Bashir didn't care. He wanted to be done, to go along with them so that he could leave, but that word had hit him wrong, and it felt like a dishonor to the dead to talk about them so coldly. Significant events. Doctor, the Admiral asked, what happened to your hand? Julian's head snapped up. What had that to do with the timeline? A hammer, he answered sharply. During work? The admiral was asking delicately, but he didn't seem to understand the reaction it pr- provoked in J- in Bashir. Work, he repeated again with those words. It wasn't work. It was a day in an off. It wasn't a day in an office and then home for dinner. It was slavery. They were two very different things. No, not at work. When? Why was he asking that? Bashir felt the air go out of the room when they were questioning me. What did they ask you, the doctor, the Admiral continued, and how did you answer? Now Bashir understood, had his words changed time? I lied, Bashir tried to reassure him. I couldn't tell them about the future. They'd think I was insane. They tortured you, the Admiral continued. Wouldn't it have been better if they had thought you insane? Do you want me to have told them the truth? Julian asked in return. They killed the insane, and they killed spies. I couldn't be either one, no matter what she did to me. The betazoid was looking uncomfortable, and Bashir realized she must be receiving a lot of emotions from him thoughts, too, memories she didn't really want any more than he did. She did to you? The ad- it appeared the Admiral had taken over the questioning altogether. I assume you mean the changeling how did you know it was the changeling she always let me know bashir told him when she wanted me to she would change her eyes or her face you said she killed men why did she kill them she didn't need a reason julian explained losing his patience he'd had little to start with she didn't need a reason not when they were jews Who did she kill? Can you name them or the circumstances of their deaths? Bashir shook his head. His chest was hurting, but he wasn't sure if it was panic or remembered pain. Only four or five of them, he answered, but his voice was hardly working now. They might not have heard. We know about Hyler. What are the others' names? One was... Henri, Julian said. His voice was coming in quick, in quickly in short gasps, but he felt he wasn't getting enough air. Henri Bessalier. He had a sister in Missouri. He was going to live with her after the war. He wanted English lessons. I wanted off the floor. Why was he killed? Because he was my friend, Julian breathed. Because we killed 46 of her people on that ship. She beat him nearly to death in front of me. He was selected in the hospital. The Betazoid drew her eyebrows together. Selected? At least she's not reading my mind, Julian thought. For death. He couldn't work, so he was killed. You worked in the hospital, the other investigator this time. Bashir shook his head. She wouldn't have let me. My first commando was, in, was building a crematorium, number two. My second built barracks. The admiral tried to direct the conversation back around to the dead. You said there were four or five, Hyler and Bersalier. Who were the others? Bashir stopped breathing. He tried to speak, but the words wouldn't come. The admiral didn't let that interrupt him. What were their names? Bashir was shaking his head. I don't don't know, he said, and finally drew in a breath. He was... He was what? Who? Did she beat him, too? The room began to spin. What about the fourth man? Did you know his name? Yes, Bashir said, but only in his mind. How could he forget Pyotr? He would never forget, as long as he lived. He nodded, and a tear fell down his face. She didn't, he whispered beat the other man. They were all silent now, finally sensing his discomfort. But he'd gone too far to stop. It was something he could no longer control. He had tried to push the memories away, but they refused to stay buried. They rushed back at him, and he could see it all again. He felt the cold air, the barrel of the gun at his temple. Oh, it's not that easy, Herr Englander, he heard Heiler say. I will shoot one of them. He tried to find a way out, an answer beyond the simple yes or no she gave him. He couldn't do it. He couldn't beat that man. But he knew she would shoot. He was frozen, lost in panic, and he couldn't decide. I was ready to die, he told them. His face was wet with tears now, tears he hadn't been able to shed for Pyotr before, or the nameless man waiting to be flogged. I, he stuttered, "I, I, I was flogged I knew but she didn't shoot me the gun fired blocking all other sound from his ears he could see Piotr fall, his blood spilling onto the snow and splattering his neighbors in the line Hyla raised the gun again before Bashir could even rise, he took the whip in his shaking hands I beat him he couldn't breathe I kept waiting for them to say stop, that it was enough. I didn't want to, he pleaded with them, but she would have killed them. He was nearly sobbing, hardly coherent. She would have shot them all because of me. He doubled over, dropping his face into his hand. That's enough, Kira said, but he didn't hear her. He was lost to himself. Leave him alone. Major. Major. The admiral protested weakly, his voice nearly cracked. Kira didn't let him finish. He couldn't help it. Anything he did there, he had no power, no choices. She was indignant. Get out and leave him alone. She touched him. He hadn't even realized she had left her seat. She put her arm around him. Her other hand touched his face, lifted his head. It wasn't your fault, Julian. You didn't beat that man. She did. He held out his hand as if to show her the truth, but it was in my hand. I felt it when it hit him. I heard him scream. He passed out and they made me start over from Eintz. We were at Svansik, and he had to start over at Eintz. He was dead, Kira, before he reached twenty again. I don't even know what he did. "'But it wasn't you, Julian,' she insisted, taking both of his hands in hers. "'She used your hand because she knew it would hurt you more than anything she could do to your body.'" The others must have obeyed her and left. Three hours later, Kira and he left too. That night, Kira had nightmares. She dreamt of everything he told her in those three hours. Kira found him in the garden. The hospital really did have a beautiful garden. Actually, she had to admit it was all the way around a beautiful planet, just as Sisko had said. Paradise. She could hardly imagine it as the same place she had seen before. The sky was a gorgeous blue, and the temperature, it was spring there, was neither too hot nor too cold. Flowers of every color imaginable were blooming in the garden around Starfleet Medical. Bashir was sitting on a bench there all alone. "'Julian,' she said quietly, not wanting to startle him, "'he was jumpy these days. "'It's almost time. "'Sisco's father was expecting them for dinner, the whole crew. "'Jordan was especially looking forward to it. "'He had stopped her three times on the Defiant just that afternoon, "'asking if Bashir would be going. "'They'd all put a lot into saving him. "'They wanted to see for themselves that he was all right. "'Kira wasn't 100% convinced that he was all right. "'But then... Neither was she. She'd lived with things, dealt with things, remembered things that needed forgetting, and she was still able to carry out her duties. She knew Bishir would be the same doctor he always was. The best, though she still didn't think she'd ever tell him that. "'Did you find them, Kira?' he asked, still gazing at the flowers. His back was to her. "'Anything at all?' Kira shook her head, though she knew he couldn't see. No, but Thomas is helping to look. We'll be late, Julian. We have a reservation. Just think. Real food. He lifted a hand to her without turning around. It was his left hand. His fingers were long and straight. The back of his hand was smooth. He turned his head and smiled. I can't feel it yet. It will take a couple of days. Well, you only need one to throw. Kira had a bag over her shoulder. The uniform she'd replicated was inside of it. The entire away team, except for Dax and Salomon, had volunteered to return with the Defiant, and they'd all be carrying bags to dinner. Joe Sisko had also offered to host their bonfire. He still didn't rise from the bench. "'I figured it out,' he told her. His smile was gone. Here or there, it makes no difference. They could take me on the station or steal me from my sleep on Mizen 4. The Defiant, Earth, nothing is safe anymore.' So what will you do? Kira asked him. Just keep breathing, I guess. He stood and his smile returned. And eat real food. Come on, we don't want to be late. Two days later, she was pacing the deck of the Defiance Bridge. She knew she shouldn't. It might make the new crew nervous. Thomas, from the helm, turned around to look at her. Kira motioned her to the back of the room. "'Run a scan of the planet's surface,' she told her quietly. "'See if you can find him.' "'Should be easier this time,' Thomas quipped. "'Let's hope so. "'We're supposed to be leaving in less than an hour.' "'Thomas ran the scan, and the results came back quickly "'thanks to the newly repaired sensors. "'Thomas seemed to freeze for a moment, "'and then the set of her shoulders softened. "'He's gone back, Major,' she reported gently. "'What?' Kira stepped up beside her to look at the readout. Auschwitz she thought for a moment like returning to Galatep she had done that once it had looked so different so empty so silent and yet so full of presence she sighed I think we'll be a little late she raised her voice you have the bridge mr. Jordan the transporter put her down only a few meters from him but he barely stirred to note her presence he was standing in a doorway. She was in the corridor behind him, almost around the corner. "'Julian,' she whispered, not wanting to startle him. "'This was my cell,' he answered softly. "'My haven.' "'Haven?' Kira wondered at his choice of terms. She stepped closer, looking around his shoulder. It was a dark room, not even three meters square, if she had to guess. There was no light source, not even a window. The door was solid and thick." No one touched me when I was in there, he went on, except the doctor, but that doesn't count. Kira touched his arm. Julian, we need to go back. He didn't look at her. He just sighed. How could this happen? he asked. Kira didn't know what to say in reply. She had a few ideas on why the changeling had sent him to this place, but the torture and torment were something else. Obsession? Dimension, perha- dementia, perhaps? Not just me," he added, seeming to know what she was thinking, but to all of them. There were so many, Kira. What is in us so black and vile to make us do things like this? I don't think I'll ever understand. His words had torn something within her. I understood once, she whispered, dropping her eyes to the floor. She thought maybe she saw a faint stain of long-eroded blood there. I've been trying to forget. He raised his left hand to run it along the frame of the door. I couldn't step inside, he told her. I was afraid the door would close behind me. He sighed again. I can't leave yet, Major. I have to say goodbye. Kira didn't ask to whom. She imagined he knew. His friends and all the others that he met or didn't meet, he was like that. She was, too. He turned slowly, putting his back to the cell. Then I guess we'll be a little late, Kira said, and she took his hand. You're not alone this time. Epilogue Julian Bashir placed his communicator carefully on the table beside the bed. Then he picked it up and rubbed it against his sleeve until it shined. He set it back down again and changed into his nightclothes. It had been a long day of answering the same question over and over. How are you? Still, he couldn't say they didn't care. It felt good to have so many people care about how he was. But it was also tiresome to answer them, especially when they didn't really want to know. Some of them did, like Captain Sisko or O'Brien, but Julian wanted to spare them the details. Kira knew them all. Jordan had had a glimpse of them during his day there. He might tell O'Brien someday. O'Brien had memories, too. But for now, nightmares and all, he was ready to go to sleep, in his own bed, the bed he'd left only three and a half weeks before. Temporal Mechanics. He had only slept for five hours, though, when he was awakened by the chime on his door. At first, he couldn't move to answer it. His heart was pounding too hard. He had a phaser, though, so and he picked it up. He was better able to move, then, and he made it to the door. He keyed it open and lowered the phaser. "'Thought you might want a midnight snack,' Captain Sisko said. He was smiling broadly and carrying a large casserole dish. "'So I made you some beets. I know how you love them.' he stepped into the room without being invited. But Julian didn't feel threatened. He sensed something more was to happen. I'm not that hungry, sir. Well, maybe you'll like hasperat. Kira suggested, poking her head around the doorframe. Welcome home. Fruits, Julian, Dax was next. They're not only delicious, but they contain vitamins to help you grow. You're much too thin. Bashir had run out of things to say. Each time one of them stepped into the room, someone else stepped into the door frame. O'Brien had a plate of cookies, chocolate chip. Garrick had something Cardassian. Odo even managed a tray of root beer. Bubbles, he said. Jake, of course, had brought Idanian spice pudding. Jordan had a plate of matzo. Something Jewish, he explained. I think. His hair was starting to grow in again, like Julian's fingernails. Novak had brought something German, a dark Bavarian bread. "'Julian sat down on the couch and watched them stream in and laughed. "'It felt good to laugh again. "'By the time they were all in, there was barely room for them to sit on the floor, "'and every table he had was covered with plates and bowls and glasses. "'Cisco stood to make a toast. "'As of today, according to Nurse Jabara,' he waited for a nod from her, "'you're free to eat whatever you want, so we thought we'd bring you a treat or two. Of course, you have to stick with small portions, so we had to come and help you eat all this food. He raised his glass and became serious. To the Fallen They stayed for several hours, though Odo had to excuse himself to rest. Nurse Jabara kept a close eye on him, despite her earlier affirmation, but she let him sample everything. It was wonderful. And at that moment, he could not have cared if it was only a dream. It was a good dream. "'Thomas was the last one to leave. "'She hung back when the others said their goodbyes. "'I didn't bring any food,' she said, seeming to apologize. "'Her hands were behind her back. "'But I did bring you something. "'She pulled one of our arms from behind her "'and produced a book, a real book, "'with paper and a leather cover. "'I replicated it in book form. "'It's the English translation,' she explained. "'I'm glad one of ours survived.' She kissed him on the cheek and then disappeared down the corridor. Julian looked at the cover of the book. To the Fallen, he read aloud, by Max Ziedel. The End Yeah, I've got those tears again. (laughs) That last line did it. There really is something about reading a story out loud to help you find all the typos and missing commas. I found so many. But also, reading aloud has issues. I didn't think I could actually whisper when a character whispered whispered, or when Bashir could only breathe out a word with little to no voice. How would that be heard? So I had to make it somewhat audible. I hope I did a reasonable facsimile in my reading I kind of felt that I moved his recovery along too fast, but it is the 24th century, and I'm sure they could do things in a lot faster than we can now. So, as I've said before, I'm not going to make a major change to a 23-year-old story. I'll leave it as it is. I did have a little bit of trouble uploading uh, one segment of this story. In fact, it just refused to upload. I was able to record after it, and I finally had to record that section again out of order, and by then, I'd heard enough to know that, yeah, I could I could pretty much breathe on this thing and it would hear. So, sorry if I was a little loud in all the whisperings and all that. Um, or if it just got quieter and then got louder again um, at the end. And I'm, I'm still learning this whole anchor thing. But it's good to know that it just picks up so much. Now, I would like to read the bibliography so you can see where I got the information I needed for the story. Don't worry. I won't read all the boring details, just titles and authors. Historical Atlas of the Holocaust. That was by Macmillan Publishing. I don't have an author there. Auschwitz 1940 to 1945 Guidebook through the Museum. auschwitz Ponstovova Museum the auschwitz museum. My guess at that at that Polish pronunciation. This is the guidebook you get when you go to Auschwitz, and it has a map and another all these things. So I could actually look at the map of the camp as I was writing those parts of them running around trying to find Bashir. Auschwitz Chronicle by Czech, uh, excuse me, Dan- Danuta Czech, and Czech is spelled like the Czech Republic. That's why so I kind of jumped on it. Uh, Auschwitz Chronicle, I believe if I'm remembering right, is a huge book. And it has numbers of uh, of transports, how many people were on that transport, how many were uh, pulled into the camp, how many were sent to the gas, the numbers those in the camp would receive. So when I gave Bashir a transport, I gave him an actual transport from Bialystok. And when he got his number, he got a number that would fit in that range. I specifically, specifically did not read out or write out the entire number. That is because that number really belonged to an actual human being. And I did not want to actually, you know, replace that person with a fictional character. So we only hear part of Bashir's number and then he just recognizes that it's his. Death Dealer, The Memoirs of the S.S. Commandant at Auschwitz, by Rudolf Huss. Survival in Auschwitz, Primo Levi. Ellie, Coming of Age in the Holocaust, by Livia E. Bitten Jackson. Body Trauma, A Writer's Guide to Wounds and Injuries, by David W. Page, M.D. The Order of Terror, The Concentration Camp, by Wolfgang Sofsky. Deadly Doses, A Writer's Guide to Poisons by Sarita Sir, Deborah Stevens and Ann Clarner. The Janowska Road by Leon Wells. Those are some of the books that I use. I, those are all the books that I used to write this story. The rest of it was things I already knew from previous readings or from being in Auschwitz on three different occasions. Um that cell really existed, that cell with no air. It was airtight. So whatever air got in when they opened the door, that was the air in the room. Um, There were standing cells that were hardly wide enough for one man to stand in there. They would put four. So They were called standing cells. You could not sit down, and you'd be stuck that way, standing up in that cell, crowded with three other people. Um block 11 is a whole whole little microcosm of terror (laughs) if you ever want to look into that um, the death block well we're not done yet I know it seems like we should be done but we're not I want to remind you that you can go back now and read the translations of all the German Czech French and Polish in this story you can find that in the 18th chapter on both fanfiction.net and archive of our own. It should be labeled as appendix, and that is what it is on my site. That's gabrielle.sites.net, slash trek, slash stories, append.html. And remember, sites is S Y T E S. But wait, there's more. You see, I wrote a short story as an extra epilogue to Auschwitz. It's an exophile story, and it's not nearly as dark. Star Trek: Deep Space Nine: Osphianchum by Gabrielle Lawson, X Files Epilogue. Standard disclaimer applies. X Files is the property of Fox Television, and the story is not intended in any way to infringe on that. They also own Mulder and Scully and all that. You can read the disclaimer on um, the where the stories are uh, stories posted. Topeka, Kansas, eleven forty-seven p.m. Three police cars were parked along the street. Their flashing lights cast blue and red reflections on the windows of the house, but their lights also cut the darkness, illuminating the curious outline of the windows and door. It seemed odd at first, but it was easily explained and confirmed by the fact that the front door stood wide open. Mulder parked the car and then followed Scully up the sidewalk that evenly divided the neatly landscaped front yard. A policeman, young, with pale skin and red hair beneath his cap, "'held up a hand to block their entry. "'Scully flashed her ID, though, and he waved them through. "'Where?' Mulder asked. "'Shower,' the officer replied. "'Master bedroom upstairs to the right.' "'Mulder led the way, but paused halfway up the stairs. "'Do you smell something, Scully?' he asked, "'with a playful glint in his eye. "'Mulder,' Scully scolded. "'They spent two hours airing out the house. "'There's no danger.' "'Just asking.' He continued up the stairs. There were more police in the bedroom. The lights in the room were turned off, probably for fear of fire hazard despite the airing of the house. Each of the officers in the room had high-powered flashlights, which gave enough light to see, even if they did throw multiple shadows across the walls and floor. One man, in plain clothes, seemed to be in charge. He stood just in the doorway to the bathroom. You the FBI? He asked. Detective Goldberg? Scully waited for a a confirmation and then introduced herself special agents scully and molder we've read the report it sounds fairly straightforward i'm not sure why the fbi is involved ordinarily i don't suppose you would be agent scully goldberg replied but this is not ordinarily he tilted his head gesturing that they should take a look in the shower Mulder went first he stiffened but blocked the view so that scully couldn't see what the problem was "'Is that what I think it is?' he asked, stepping back. Scully stepped forward as Goldberg nodded. The victim was indeed in the shower. He was sitting, eyes forward. His arm was propped up by fishing line, straight out and stiff, though his fingers had not retained their rigid form. And he was wearing a uniform, a uniform to go with the salute. Scully didn't know the rank, but being not being a student of history... But she could certainly guess its age. The sleeves were worn, the color faded, but the uniform was obviously carefully pressed, and the jackboots he was wearing reflected back Scully's own face, watching from the door. All the pins and buttons were shined as well, including the two S's in the shape of lightning bolts that decorated his collar. "'He was a Nazi?' she asked, stepping back. "'SS,' Goldberg answered. "'Take a look at his name.' Scharfuhrer Heiler, Martin Heiler, moved out here 11 years ago. He's been a quiet neighbor ever since. Yesterday, his neighbors noticed him putting plastic all over his windows. They called the SPCA at around 9 this evening when they heard the dog barking out back, figuring she's being neglected. The SPCA reported the gas. What kind of gas? Mulder asked. He seemed intrigued, but Scully thought it looked like suicide, despite the uniform. It wasn't an FBI matter. It didn't even sound like an X-File. You're thinking maybe Cyclone B? No, it's natural, Goldberg shrugged, right from the oven. Took a while to fill up the house. My guess is his arm got tired, so he propped it up like that. He could have gotten the uniform from a surplus store, Scully suggested. Goldberg nodded. We had a few hours before we could even get in here, so I did some checking. Supposedly, he was born in Frankfurt, immigrated in 38, and retired from BMW before moving out here, but there's no immigration records for Martin Heiler from Frankfurt in 38 or any other year. Personally, I think there's a good possibility he's a war criminal. So you think he's skipped Germany and he's been hiding out in Topeka, Kansas? Even Mulder sounded skeptical at this time. "'It's been known to happen,' Goldberg shot back. "'Either way, the man is not who he said he was, and we found something in his pocket. "'Stevens?' The woman who had been examining the body reached into the shower and pulled a small plastic Ziploc bag from the right breast pocket of Hyler's uniform. She handed it to Goldberg, who handed it to Muller. He even obliged by holding up his flashlight to illuminate it more clearly. Mulder put on a pair of latex gloves before taking the bag, which he then held out so Scully could see. The bag contained a fine, dark gray powder. What is it? You're the FBI, Goldberg retorted. Why don't you tell me? I've worked in narcotics for seven years, never seen anything like it. FBI Headquarters, Washington, D.C., one ten p.m. Any news on our SS, Scully? Mulder asked as he removed his jacket. ''I had a lovely lunch,'' Scully replied. ''Thank you.'' Mulder smiled. ''How was your lunch, Scully? And by the way, any news on our Nazi, or rather any new news?'' There was a playful glint in his eye. ''Actually, yes,'' Scully stood up to hand Mulder a file. ''He's not Hyler. Goldberg had the name tag analyzed. It's a fake. Special order.'' Mulder was reading as he was listening. ''But all the other insignia is authentic.'' Yes, I had the Holocaust Museum's library check out the name Martin Heiler of the SS. Heiler turns up. Auschwitz. But the badge was a fake. Mar- Mulder flipped through forward in the file. Scully nodded. Heiler, Heiler disappeared in 1943. Disappeared? Mulder apparently found the page he was looking for. Reported missing when he didn't report for his shift with one of the work commandos, March 24, 1943. Never heard from again. He looked up from the folder. Why would he pick Kansas? He didn't. But Hartmut Fischer did, Scully returned. Born Freistadt, Missouri in 1922. Moved to Chicago in 46. Started with BMW in his 60s. Retired at at 55 and disappeared. Want to go to Freistadt for dinner, Scully? Mulder asked. I hear they make a great vice first. No, thank you, Mulder. I've got paperwork to do. Your loss. Alexandria, Virginia, 7.23 p.m. I found Hartmut Fisher of Frystop, Missouri, born 1922, Scully. Scully tucked the phone under her ear and held it with her shoulder while she looked for the file in her briefcase. Found him? Found him where? The cemetery across from the restaurant, Mulder responded, and the vice versa was wonderful, not to mention the Bavarian bread. The cemetery? Scully found the file on Fisher and or Hyler and flipped it open. When did he die? 22 Juni 1922. It took Scully a minute to work out the numbers. 1922? Maybe he was Heiler under an alias, falsified records. Possible, but what was he doing for three years? Mulder asked, picking up his own briefcase. Fisher only shows up again in 1946, Chicago. What was he doing those three years if he was Heiler? The Nazis were still riding fairly high in 43. They didn't get driven out of Auschwitz until 45 and Heiler had a clean record. And then he added, by SS standards. So we still don't know who he is. I think I've got a handle on that. See about that powder, will you, Scully? I'll fill you in in the morning. FBI Headquarters, Washington, D.C., 10 a.m. Heiler dropped the file onto Scully's desk. Immigration and naturalization. If he wasn't born here, he had to get into the country somehow. Scully leaned back on her desk and crossed her arms. So who is he? Probably one Herr Helmut Fischer, born in Frankfurt, 1942, immigrated in 1946, disappeared later that year. Hartmut Fischer, he wasn't creative, was he? Scully commented. He didn't need to be because Fischer's his real name. But Fischer died as an infant. Hartmut Fischer did. Helmut Fischer did not. He was—he really was born in Frankfurt. They were cousins. Hartmut's parents immigrated from Germany in 1918. The rest of the family stayed behind. Detective Goldberg found some old letters. Helmut's parents kept in touch. So, who is Helmuth that he needed an alias? Helmuth Fischer was SS, also at Auschwitz, like our boy Heiler, only he was there until 1945, attached to the Sonderkommando. He reported enthusiastically for duty and never called in sick. Sonderkommando? Scully may not have been a historian, but she did know what that meant. The gas chambers. What a guy. "'A real ubermensch,' Mulder added sarcastically. "'So what, did he feel guilty after 50 years and decide to gas himself?' Scully asked, putting the pieces to the puzzle together. Mulder shrugged. "'Looks that way, but that doesn't explain the powder. That's your job.' Scully's eyes dropped to her desk where the small packet of powder lay. I sent samples to three different labs and none of them can identify the substance. It's not ash, it's not sand, it's not organic, it's not mineral, it doesn't match any known substance. Muller grinned. I didn't think it would, he said, but I wanted to give you a chance. So you know what it is? No. Then how did you know I couldn't identify it? Because I looked up the SS reports from Auschwitz for March 24th, 1943. The day Heiler disappeared, Scully was getting a little impatient. And you found what? Nothing, his grin widened. But Detective Goldberg did did find some personal letters among Fisher's things, as I said. They were in German, of course. One in particular was written on March twenty-fifth, 1943. The day after Heiler disappeared. Mulder nodded. Also right after the opening of the first new crematoria, crematorium in Birkenau, the one Fisher worked with. He wrote to his wife, telling her of a strange event. It seems on the day before, Heiler took a prisoner into the anteroom of the gas chamber just as the an action, an action was about to begin. Another SS, a woman, followed him in and shooed all the Sonderkommando inmates away. When the other SS finally got the door open, the SS who was supposed to drop the Zyklon B was unconscious. Heiler and the woman were nowhere to be seen. "'And there was a strange dark gray powder covering the floor and clothing at one end of the room. "'It had even dusted the walls and ceilings. "'That's where the packet came from. "'He sent it to her in the letter. "'Strangely enough, they never found that prisoner either.' "'What are you saying, Mulder?' Scully shook her head. "'Did they spontaneously combust?' "'Then that would be ash, wouldn't it?' Muller calmly returned. "'Or at least organic. It's neither. "'According to your labs, it's not of this earth.' Scully rejected that idea. They didn't say that. Mulder winked. Not in so many words. The end. I had one little edit to make in that epilogue, the X-Files one. And when I did, I realized I said Hyler once when I was supposed to say Mulder, and there's no way to substitute you know, uh, you know, if I noticed it, I would have fixed it, you know, in the recording, so I could just edit out the bad part, but there's no way to substitute a piece. So, it's in there. It meant to be molder. Okay. <laughs> well, I hope you enjoyed that. Um, that was never meant to be nearly as heavy as Osvenshim did have its own epilogue, but this one, it just kind of struck me that Kira got a vial of that powder, but there was a whole lot of that powder in that room and Hyler disappeared. <laughs> so Maybe there'd be something mysterious that could be investigated and I thought oh, Mulder and Scully would be good for this. So I hope you enjoyed that. That is also posted to all, uh, re- I only posted it recently actually, uh, to all three sites, my site, uh, Archive of Our Own, and fanfiction.net, as a separate file. Archive of Our Own allows you to put stories into a series, so I have a series called Ozfanchim, and you'll find Ozfanchim, all 18 chapters of that, and then X-Files epilogue. Uh, so, you can you can find it out there. If you enjoyed this story, the big one, the short one, <laughs> either way, do drop me a line. You can tweet me at Inheildi, I-N-H-E-I-L-D-I, or email me at inhiledy at gmail dot com. I am going to end the season here. I don't know how long of a break I'm gonna take. But, you know, I've got a new job I've got to start, gotta get used to the sleeping schedule and all that. Right now I'm it's four in the morning and I really shouldn't be up. But that job doesn't start till next week, so I'm good. Um and I have to figure out what I'm going to do exactly. I know I want to talk to Valerie. Um, I'll have to see. I'll have to think about it. And uh, so maybe I'll come back in a, in a couple of weeks or a month or so and uh, talk some more about writing or read another story. I've certainly got lots of stories to read. <laughs> it's been fun. I enjoy doing this. And I will see you next season.